going to be in Psalm 20 today. Uh, today and for the rest of the summer, we're going to be in the Psalms, looking at various ones. Hopefully they're encouraging. I think this one will be, for sure. Uh, there's an old saying that goes something along the lines of, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. It's been attributed to the likes of Socrates and Plato, and has been borrowed by people such as novelist Brad Meltzer and comedian Robin Williams. The oldest known recorded instance of this statement was actually in 1897 uh, in a magazine called British Weekly by a man named Ian McLaren. And McLaren was a pen name for author John Watson, who was also a minister in the Free Church of Scotland and one of the founders of Westminster College at the University of Cambridge. Now, it doesn't surprise me that such a quote might come from a minister. Uh, one who almost certainly heard quite a few stories from quite a few people. Watson lived in the late 1800s and then into the very early 1900s, dying in 1907. And he left behind a fairly extensive legacy through his ministry and numerous books that are still available. You can get them on Amazon or whatever I looked for a few. Uh, but not a whole lot's known about him personally. Uh, in fact, he often kind of gets overlooked as the most probable person to have actually written that quote. But all that to say this, he was right. Everyone is fighting a battle of some sort. Often a battle others have no idea that they are fighting. Maybe even a battle that those close to them are not aware of. Why is this? Is it because we are all too busy to pay attention? Is it because we are all too lazy to pay attention? Would we all know more if we just paid better attention? Maybe. But it is probably also due to the fact that there's a whole world of thoughts and ideas and feelings going on inside each and every one of us, and very few of us have it adequate outlets for them. Our lives are a vast, interlocking web of overlapping points and moments, but none of us really overlap perfectly. Even those of us who are fairly close, whether as family or friends, do not share fully in the life experience of each other. We may know some of the stories, or even most of them, we may know what we thought about what happened in some of those stories. But outside of being able to read minds, none of us has the kind of access it would take to really know what another person thinks or feels or what they're going through. The exception to this is Jesus. Jesus knows our hearts. We read in 1 Samuel 16, 7 that the Lord sees not as man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Which means the only person who will ever truly know us and know what we're going through, the, the only one who will ever know what kind of battle we are facing personally is Jesus. 
And we can make some general statements about the kinds of things that we experience as humans. We can draw certain conclusions about the human condition. But in the end, it all comes back to Jesus. And that brings up the question for this morning. It's a question we seem to have been dealing with at some length in our study of Jonah over the past several weeks as well. How much do we trust the Lord? When we step back and look at whatever we are going through in our lives right now, whatever we are experiencing or fighting, it all comes back to trust. And as we dig into Psalm 20 this morning, we're going to see how trust is the key element in facing whatever battle we are facing. And how whatever we may think or feel, ultimately, all our battles are a matter of facing the same thing. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read in Psalm 20, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so as we dive into this psalm, the first thing we need to know is that it's what's called a royal psalm. It's a psalm written about the king, and in this case, uh, a battle that the king is going into. Uh, or maybe even several battles going forward. But it's also a psalm, uh, what's known as call and response which many churches still practice when doing responsive readings. Uh, in this case, the first part is sort of sung by the people or spoken by the people, and then the response is then sung or spoken by the king. And we see this divide between verse 5 and 6 where the language changes from we to I, and then back to we in verse 7. And this actually happens quite a bit in the Psalms. We just tend to sort of read past it and not think too much about it. Uh, but today we're going to dig a, big deep, dig a bit deeper into it. Uh, apparently this psalm was written before the king, like I said, went out to battle. And I tried to dig around and see if there was like a specific situation connected to this that would sort of unpack it better. But there's just not any information about that. So I'm sorry that we can't tell you exactly what it's about. Uh, but still, we can tell from the way the psalm is written that this is not about conquest. The king is not marching out to destroy other nations and take over an ever-expanding empire. That's not what's going on here. Uh, instead, based on the language, this psalm is about defending Israel 
against some other predatory nation, some other empire or group is coming against them. Uh, another entity that was bringing force against them. And most likely there had already been some amount of trouble as the psalm sort of paints a picture of a king who had mustered an army to go out and defend his people, which means that they needed defending. The people at the edges of the kingdom would have been easy targets for an invading army. And as they moved further toward the capital of Jerusalem, they would have faced maybe more resistance there, but probably not a lot. <clears throat> Their goal would have been to confront and defeat the king, either by killing him or getting him to surrender. Sometimes they would then make a treaty that allowed the king to live by sending tribute on a regular basis of various sorts. Uh, more likely, the king would be killed to show that his god and his power were no match for the invading, god, uh, the invading army and their king and their god. Uh, this would lead to the enemy setting up some sort of like governor uh, of sorts who then rule with a military force over the people while acquiring whatever resources that they could take from them. In either case, there's a parallel for us in that this is also the goal and purpose of the enemy that we face. Whatever battle we are experiencing, this is basically the same thing that is going on. Our enemy is set on attacking us at the edges at first. Little skirmishes here and there. As this enemy begins to gain ground, we might begin to put up some form of resistance, but it's invariably not going to be enough for the enemy we are facing. So the enemy makes its way to the seat of our king's power, which is our hearts. The battle there will determine whether or not we remain free or become enslaved. And if we are on the throne of our own hearts, or if we have placed some other person or even some powerless object on the throne, some idol of our own making, we will inevitably be conquered and enslaved by our enemy. But if the Lord is enthroned in our hearts, the outlook is very different. Because the Lord doesn't fight like we fight. The Lord approaches all of this from another angle entirely. Look at verse 2. When the Lord answers and goes out to protect us, the help comes from the sanctuary. Not the military camps or strongholds. The sanctuary. And this is a reference to both the tabernacle and the temple, as well as the sort of holy place within it. Remember how it's built, the inner court, the holy place, the holy of holies, and the veil. Uh, the place behind the veil where the ark would have been, the most holy place, that's sort of what this is referring to. That's where the help comes from. The ark of the covenant, of course, represents God's footstool on earth, the footstool of the true king. In other words, this is a call for divine intervention. A call for God to get involved. And why would anyone call for God to get involved if there was no trust there? See, that's part of our problem. We don't fully trust God. 
We trust ourselves sometimes way too much. We trust our leaders way too much. I mean, we say we don't. We say we know better. But then we focus all our time and energy talking about them and whatever they're doing. People of God trust in other people and other things, but fail to trust in God first and foremost, that's bad news. And it leads to things getting worse. Now, this psalm is not about trusting in ourselves or others. It's not about trusting in the power of culture or politics. It's not even about trusting in military power. It's strictly about trusting in the power of our Lord who is both present and active in our lives. So when the enemy attacks us and feel, we feel ourselves being overwhelmed by whatever it is, we can turn to the sanctuary and trust that God will help. Now this doesn't mean literally facing like this building as the church or the temple mount in Jerusalem or anything like that. Verse 3 seems to be about offerings and sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle or temple, as if the Lord has a price and will only help if we have done enough. But that's not really what is meant there. It's really about the direction our hearts are facing. When we come under attack, and we're, are we facing a throne with God on it? Are we trusting in the Lord to rescue us from our enemies? Have we offered ourselves to Him? Have we sacrificed our own selfish desires in favor of what the Lord wants for us? Isn't this what Paul is talking about in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he wrote, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As believers, we don't live like other people live. Our hope and trust aren't wrapped up in people or things they can't be. We are to have our hope and trust set on our Savior alone. It's like the old hymn that we sang, uh, we should have our hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? Anything else, and we're fighting a losing battle. Moving into verses 4 and 5, the prayer of the people moves from the sanctuary, sending out help to the hopeful outcome of the battle. And this is a place where we can find a good bit of encouragement, I think. When the psalmist wrote about the king receiving his heart's desire and all his plans being fulfilled, there's a sort of double meaning there. First, the king would no doubt desire to be victorious and come home unscathed and would have made strategic battle plans to achieve victory. Now, if the king was following the guidance of the Lord, those plans might look very different from normal military plans. For example, in Judges 6-7, through 7, when the nations of Midian and Amalek were invading Israel, God raised up Gideon 
and gave him a very unique battle plan. The Gideon began with 32,000 warriors, which is a considerable army in that day. But God had him dismiss all but 300. No military leader in their right mind would go this route. Then he armed those 300 with empty jars, torches, and trumpets. Not your standard battle attire, right? They encircled the military camp of the enemy in the night. They blew their trumpets, they smashed the jars, and they lifted their torches and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they won. The opposing army panicked, scattered, and killed each other in the darkness. Gideon listened to the Lord and did the unthinkable and worked. This is what it means to trust the Lord. To follow the path that is set before us, even if following it doesn't always make sense. Even if it seems absurd. Do what the Holy Spirit guides us to do, to really listen whether or not we fully understand what we're being guided to do. Because in the long history of God's dealing with mankind, the way the Lord has almost invariably made very little sense until after the battle is over and the victory is won. There's another meaning hiding just below the surface in these two verses, however. If we just sort of casually read through this, it might seem as though this is a prayer for God to do what we want. But once we recognize that this is about a king, we have to shift our view, right? Does this mean only kings can be selfish and ask God for what they want? Or does it mean something entirely different? Could it be that this is about a king's desire for his people and their well-being. When asking the Lord grant the king his heart's desire and fulfill all his plans, does that sound more like an encouragement to be selfish or an encouragement to be selfless? And in the wrong hands, this could easily turn into some sort of prosperity gospel approach where God gives us whatever we want but that's not what we're seeing here. This is about desires and plans for the future of a people. That he would be victorious so that his people would have a future. If this was simply about the king getting whatever he wanted, why would the people shout for joy over that? The reality is that their future was tied up in his victory. The king was defeated, they would be killed or enslaved, or at the very least heavily taxed. Whatever promising future they may have hoped for would be utterly destroyed. But if the king succeeded, if the king won the day and repelled the invaders, there would be peace and freedom for everyone. This is something people could all get behind. Something that would bring them out with banners to welcome home their victorious king. And in a sense, it's not terribly different from the picture Paul painted of Jesus' return in First and Second Thessalonians that we studied back in the first year. 
A picture which ensures that every single person in God's kingdom of a future of freedom and peace. That's something we should be seeing in this psalm as well. The king at the time may have been Saul or even David himself, and the people would have understand, understood this all along those lines. But for us, our king is Jesus. Not Caesar. Not whoever is in Hollywood. Not whoever is in Washington, D.C. or the state capitol in Austin. And it's certainly not whoever is in the mirror. It's sort of crazy when we stop to think about it, how many people claim to be Christians, yet consistently struggle with him actually being on the throne. That struggle is based in our lack of trust. In our disbelief that Jesus truly has desires and plans for us that will lead to our flourishing. And this sort of creates a domino effect. Every time we struggle with Jesus being on the throne, our borders are left unsecured and our enemy begins attacking at the edges again. Methodically making its way back toward our capital. And that's when we face some of our most difficult battles. Because we're going into them trying to be our own savior or hoping that someone or something other than Jesus can do the job. But look at what the psalmist wrote. In verse 6, when the king responded to the prayer the people offered, he stated, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. This confidence occurs before the battle even begins. How can that be? The king is assured of victory because of his trust in the Lord. And this is the key to this whole psalm and how we should handle our own personal battles, whatever they are. It's all a matter of trust, of who is on the throne. The assurance of victory over our enemy. The assurance that we will walk out the other side of whatever comes at us. It's wrapped up in Jesus being our Savior and King. In His being on the throne of our lives. This doesn't mean that if we give Jesus the throne of our lives, everything will be easy and we'll never have to face any battles. That's definitely not what this is talking about. It means that when we face them, if Jesus is on the throne, we will come out the other side victorious. Now, that may not always look like we think. Trusting in God doesn't just mean trusting in His strategy uh, when we understand it. It means trusting in the way everything unfolds. I say this because we are still going to face hardship and pain and sorrow and at some point death but they don't have to be the final word as people who trust in Jesus our battles don't define us he defines us and he says some very specific things about who we are 
Like in Matthew 5 where He calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Or in John 1.12 where we are called the children of God. Or in Luke 12.7 where He talked about how valuable we are to our Heavenly Father. But ultimately, one of the most powerful statements Jesus makes is found in John 11, 25-26, when Jesus was speaking with Martha about the death of her brother Lazarus. We've talked about that story before as well. She confessed to believing in a resurrection, and she trusted that Lazarus would rise again on the last day. Then Jesus answered her. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There's nothing this broken world can throw at us that can overcome the power of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. There's no enemy powerful enough to defeat Jesus in battle. We know this because even the seemingly inescapable power of death could not hold him. We also know that he had to go through the cross to get to the resurrection. And that means we do too. We have to face our battles. We do not face them alone. We face them knowing that we will overcome. Even if they seem to have the upper hand, we will be victorious. Because our king has already defeated our enemy. They may still be attacking, but ultimately they have no power here. We can be assured that because the Lord saved His anointed by raising Jesus from the dead, He will do the same for us. We see this in Romans 8.11 where Paul wrote that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Which means that even death has no power over us. We too can have confidence going into battle. Knowing that whatever happens, our outcome is ultimately in the hands of a loving God who wants the best for us and has plans to make us flourish. In verse 7 and 8, the people respond by trusting in the Lord. This is fascinating because any military force going into battle with uh, chariots and horses has an advantage in that day and time. But the people here recognized that trusting in these things wouldn't bring this victory. That they couldn't possibly guarantee a positive outcome. The people are joining in the king's confidence, echoing his conviction with their own. They were agreeing that they trusted the Lord to provide and that even when the things of the world failed, they would triumph. This also echoes other passages, such as Isaiah 31.1, where we read, 
Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. 1 Samuel 17, we see that even David, when he faced Goliath in the valley of Elah, he said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. David went on to describe how the Lord would give him the victory that day, displaying his confidence in the power of the Lord by saying that when he was victorious over the giant, all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword, and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands this is the confidence of those who trust in the Lord it doesn't mean we won't face battles of course we will it doesn't mean we don't have doubts or questions of course we will but the, we confront our battles and lean into our questions and doubts by continuing to trust in the Lord. No matter what comes against us, no matter what comes from within us. So what does this all look like in practice? Well, around the same time that John Watson was ministering and writing around England, a man by the name of John Patton was living in the New Hebrides Islands as a missionary. And I've talked about him before, I may have mentioned this story before, these are uh, the New Hebrides were in islands uh, that are now called Vanuatu, if you're more familiar with that. They're about 12,000 miles east of Australia, right in the middle of the South Pacific. The people there had no Bibles, and so Patton worked to translate one into their language. Uh, and it's weird that the islanders had been cannibals, and they didn't trust anybody because there was always someone around the corner waiting to kill them. And so they didn't have words for belief or trust in their language. So when it came time to figure out uh, how to do this, uh, write these words, how to translate them, Patton sat in a chair, and he lifted his feet off the ground, and he sort of leaned into the chair. And then he asked one of the islanders what he was doing. And the islander replied that he was leaning his full weight on the chair. And Patton used that phrase, leaning your full weight throughout his translation in place of belief or trust. And I've said this before, if you turn John 3.16 into that, it says, For God so loved the world that whoever leans their full weight on him will not perish, but will have eternal life. See, this is what it looks like in practice. If we say we trust a chair to hold us when we sit on it, but we never sit on it, we haven't displayed any trust at all. But if we sit down and pick up our feet, our trust is evident. Our actions show what we really believe about the chair. The same is true for our faith in Jesus. We have to lean our full weight on Him. We have to actively place ourselves in the hands of our loving God and then let Him carry us through the battle to the victory on the other side. Whatever our battles may be, however much we may want to run away and hide, we need to recognize that our King is victorious. 
And that the same power that raised him from the dead is now at work inside each of us. It's to give us life and hope. I want to close with a passage from 2 Corinthians 4.16-18 through 18, where Paul wrote to the believers at Corinth about this very same idea. Here's what he said. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. Will you pray with me?